Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Data. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me is Football Guys staff writer Adam Harstead. Um, it's always great to be able to have Adam on the show, and I know that many of you have been like, "Hey, are you guys doing this through the rest of the off season?" And we we took a couple weeks off, uh, doing part to illness or doing part to that. I've just been super busy, and we've just have and Adam and I both have had to kind of get our schedules set. But I think we're think we're going to get back into the groove here so uh today we're going to talk a little bit about a senior bowl prospect that russ landy and i talked about um yesterday on our scott talk podcast and take another angle of of michael wilson the stanford product who's really heating up at the senior bowl practices this week um and then talk about the 49ers quarterback situation and how maybe adam might approach that and how we might approach it from a dynasty perspective um, and see what kind of trouble we get into, Adam. <laughs> so what, let's start with Michael Wilson. Um, you know, watching him back in November, and I, I, I mentioned this on uh, the show with Felix Sharp that he and I do in November, that I thought Michael Wilson was one of the best, if not the best route runner in this class from what I had seen of about 40 prospects that I had studied up to that point. Um, now, he's a... You know, he's a fifth-year senior. He took the COVID year. He missed a lot of, um, he missed basically December of 2021 through um, October of 2022. Played like three games, I think, maybe a little more than that in 2022. Looked great in those games that I watched. Um, and then promptly got hurt and missed the rest of the season. He had a foot injury that took 11 months to heal during that longer period of time. He hasn't been tr tremendously productive um, from the scale of what you would scale of what you would look for from a player. Um, so you know, Russ and I talked about it, Adam, the, from the standpoint of the injury that teams will want to look at the injury, see if it's related to a number of. Um, you know, if it's related to any other type of issues that he might have that might um, lead them to fear that he's going to continue to get hurt because old school scouts like to say, as Russ said, that if they were hurt in college, they're probably going to be hurt in the NFL. Now, that's a, we've agreed that's a simplistic way of looking at it. Um, but also, if they can pinpoint certain things in terms of body alignment issues or certain um, certain issues that may continue to be create um, concerns about repeated injuries and that's that's something that may drop his draft stock but if they determine that the issues that he had were kind of more fluke one-off type of things that you know like brian westbrook would be a great example a guy who you know had an, a scholarship to fsu tore his acl um basically playing basketball FSU rescinded the scholarship, wound up at Villanova. Then two years later, he tore his other ACL, slipping on black ice. Um, and again, not on the field, one-off type of issue, and still wound up a second-round draft pick, um, despite the fact that he had multiple significant injuries, um, you know, but they weren't determined to be something that was going to be a, a big issue for him moving forward in terms of repeat injuries. But the question that I have is, you know, a guy at Campus to Canton um, talked about, you know, dominator rating and how he really didn't hit a lot of the thresholds that a dominator rating would look for in terms of production um, that would say, does he match the modeling of what a top 24 receiver is? So I would love to know your thoughts on like 
a player, how you would approach a player like this if, say, he does get drafted in the third or fourth round, which would be indicative of the team saying, we're not too concerned about his injuries. We like what we saw on tape. He probably had a first day one or day two grade as a result of this for us on film. But the modeling from what maybe some people see for production may not be um, as strong or maybe they have mixed reviews with it. So, you know, anything you'd love to be able to talk about in terms of, you know, what's worthwhile or what are some problem points with modeling on this area and how you would approach a player like this if you saw him and said, hey, I can see that the film's appealing. Here's how would I value this? Yeah, so... uh just to get it out up front, uh, the last time I watched any college football was January 2010. I watched the uh, Sugar Bowl between Florida and Cincinnati, and that was that was my, the last college football game I've ever watched. Um, I, I haven't even really seen a snap, other than like if I'm walking through an airport and they've got something up on the TV, I'll look up and, oh yeah, there was a snap of college football. But So this is not really my wheelhouse per se, but the nice thing about... Uh, like dynasty leagues and fantasy football is that the NFL just does all my homework for me. And that's great. You know, the NFL will tell me how good guys are. If if they take a guy in a first round, he's probably as good as the other first round receivers. If they take him in the fourth round, he's probably as good as the other fourth fourth round receivers. And that's awesome. The NFL spends millions and millions of dollars. And I don't, I'm not going to stand here and say they're perfect. You're not going to stand here and say they're perfect. Obviously they have known failure modes. They get, you know, John Elway is going to overdraft. If a guy is six foot five, and can throw the ball a mile, John L. was going to take him three rounds higher than he should. Um, but by and large, the NFL is really good at figuring that stuff out. And for me, that's good enough. I can look at a guy um, like Christian Watson coming in. Um, a lot of people were off of him because of like bad camp reports. But I look at him and I'm like, he is, I think he was like the 42nd pick or the 50th pick. And I bet you he's about as good as most of the guys in that range. Um, so I wound up with him on my dynasty teams. Um, and for me, that's good enough. I've, I've had a lot of success with that. I admire the people who try to outperform that, who, who take draft position as a baseline and say, we're going to figure out things that are, that are good above and beyond draft position. And I get the impulse. Um, and I think, you know, there's some good work that's being done there, but by and large, um, I, I don't really subscribe to that. I don't, I don't think that. Um, for a number of reasons, I think a lot of these efforts to outperform the draft are kind of doomed to failure. Um, and the two big ones are um, they're kind of prone to overfitting. And we saw this a lot in 2014, 2015. Um, so, I mean, like, let's say the best receivers that come into the NFL are either going to be big or they're going to be small, right? Say it's a coin flip. You flip a coin. If it's heads, the best receiver is going to be big. If it's tails, the best receiver is going to be small. The thing about coin flips is they're random. You flip a coin, you know, 10, 20 times, you're going to get streaks in there somewhere where like 16 out of 20 flips are heads. And then after a streak like that, you're going to look at it and you're going to be like, wow, of the last 20 good receivers to enter the league, 16 of them were big. It must be good to draft big receivers. But that's not, you're just being fooled by randomness. It's it's not that big receivers are better. Um, And I mean, they are. If you look at receiver hype by draft round, basically every round further in the draft you go, the average receiver shrinks by about an inch. So the NFL is saying that height is is good. The NFL drafts height higher. But given draft position, 
if you have like a 72-inch receiver in the first round and a 75-inch receiver in the first round, you shouldn't expect the 75-inch receiver to be better because the NFL's already said these guys are both first-round receivers. That's um, a baseline. It's not necessarily taller. Right. Every every inch matters that much. Yeah. Right, right. And there's especially at receiver, um, receiver is one of the hardest ones to model because there's so many different archetypes for success. It's not really one position. It's kind of like five different positions. Yes. And the things that succeed at one aren't going to really work at the other. Um, but before the draft, looking at all this stuff is really good. And if you have like Debbie drafts, this is extraordinarily valuable stuff because you 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 can't cheat off the NFL's homework. The NFL hasn't finished its homework yet. The NFL is slackers. They turn in their homework late. You're going to have to do it on your own. Sorry. But if you're waiting until after the NFL draft, I just don't think this stuff matters that much anymore. It's, it's very easy to get fooled by randomness. And then the other thing, and this to me is like the biggest critical flaw, it's that the NFL is smart. And if they make mistakes, they're very, very incentivized to figure that out. So let's say you have, I mean, the big one was like early declare, late declare receivers. For a while, um, like late declare receivers did really poorly and early declare receivers did really well. And that became kind of this rule in Dynasty that like if a guy stays through his senior year, don't draft him. Get guys who declare as juniors or, or redshirt sophomores or whatever. Get the guys who declare young. And it makes sense that like if you're really, really, really good, you're not going to stick around all four years. You're going to leave early. You know, there's a theory and there's a mechanism behind it. But the thing is, even if it's a real phenomenon, and I'm not sure that wasn't just getting fooled by randomness again, um, the NFL is going to figure it out. They're going to be like, wow, these these late declare receivers we draft, they, they keep not working out. Maybe let's move them down our board. So it's a moving target. Even if you find a genuine inefficiency, like if you look at all the data from 2012 to 2022 and you find an inefficiency, that doesn't mean that inefficiency is still going to be there in 2023. Because if you found it, the NFL found it. They've got a lot more resources than you. They have a lot more PhDs, probably, than you. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make assumptions, but probably. They've got a lot more um, experience and money. And they get information that we don't get access to. Um, and so if we've discovered an inefficiency, odds are the NFL has discovered it too. I mean, I ran into this a lot last year that I'm just drafting basically off a of draft position. I'm not saying I just mindlessly follow it. There's some tweaks there, but but 90% of my process is just where was he drafted? And I wound up with a lot of um, Chris Olave, Jahan Dotson, and Christian Watson. And everybody's like, oh, no, you don't want to do that. Those guys were all late declares. You know, you, you want to get, like, these early declares. You'd, you'd rather get, like, you know, get Sky Moore instead of Christian Watson. You're going to regret drafting Christian Watson over Sky Moore. And, I mean, I like, I'm not saying that I had the foresight to know that Sky Moore was going to have such a rough rookie season because I liked him too because he was also drafted in that 40 to 50 pick range. But I was like, okay, even if this late declare thing was real, I don't know that it's still real going forward. Um, and I think dominator rating is kind of like that. In, in theory, um, for those who don't know, dominator rating is basically like what percentage of a team's production is a receiver getting? right? How much is he dominating the target share? If he's getting like 50% of a team's yards, you know, like Calvin Johnson or Demarius Thomas or Stephen Hill at Georgia Tech, when Georgia Tech is running um, like a triple, triple option, option and they have yeah. one receiver out in routes at any given time and that guy gets like 90% of their receiving yards because he's the only guy on the field. Very, very, very high dominator rating. Um, and that kind of illustrates one of the flaws with dominator ratings is it's very sensitive to context. Like you really need to adjust it for kind of the personnel and the offense that they're running. Um, and also like 
if you're Jalen Waddle, it's kind of hard to have a high dominator rating if you're sharing the field with Jamar Chase because that Jamar Chase guy is pretty good too. You know, uh, Devontae Smith, weren't they all on the same team? Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Jamar Chase. Or it was um, Waddle. Chase was actually with LSU, but, um, oh, okay. but Waddle and Smith absolutely were. Oh, yeah. And it was, yeah. yeah, Chase and Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of caps. Like, it's hard to get more than 50% of the offense when you're sharing with another guy who also wants to get more than 50% of the offense. So there's a cap there. Um, but in theory, yeah, like, if you're really, 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 really good, the offense is going to give you a disproportionate share of the looks. That makes sense. Um, so the theory of dominator rating, I think, is very sound. Um, in practice, there's some hiccups to work out, and I, I think there's good work, like, working through those hiccups. Um, but, yeah, I just don't love it as a single catch-all that's going to be just raw draft position, because I don't love anything as a single catch-all that's going to be draft position. And to the extent that there are things that outperform just raw draft position, and I think there are, um, I think they're really uh, much more complex than a simple like linear regression where like more of this is good and less of this is bad. Um, I have a buddy named Rob Pitzer who does work on like archetypes. And it's not about like lateral agility is good. It's that lateral agility is good when it's also paired with like a shorter height and slower straight line speed. Like at that that given archetype, that short, not great straight line speed, but great lateral agility, that's like your Wes Welker, your Julian Edelman archetype, that's a very productive archetype in the NFL. Take that same archetype and add extra height to it, and you don't get a better receiver, even though in general height is better. You get you actually get a worse receiver because then you get longer limbs and slower change of direction. And um, so my default is Anytime anybody is trying to give advice above and beyond NFL draft position, um, if it's just like a straight linear relationship where more is good, less is bad, I tend to think it's either overfit or that inefficiency is already closed. Um, and if it's more complicated, if it's like archetypes where you're looking for clusters of traits and bundles of traits, I think there might still be some juice left in that orange where you can maybe outperform draft position a little bit. But even still, at the end of the day, if the NFL takes whoever in the second round, you know, with pick 50, pick 60, I'm going to like them about as much as every other guy they take in the second round with pick 50 or pick 60. Yeah. And that makes sense, you know, and I think that that's, I think that's a very sound way of looking at um, how you would approach rookies on a, you know, in terms of what type of opportunities are going to have, what type of performance potential they're, they're going to do. And certainly you're going to have exceptions to the rule, but you're, you're trying to minimize the risk, you know? And, and so the way that you, one way to minimize it, I think is exactly the way you're talking as opposed to trying, like you said, second guessing, second guessing that process, you know, from that perspective, to me, it's more about, you know, when I see a guy on film, like to me, a guy like Wilson, if the NFL drafts him in the sixth or seventh round, then, you know, for me, as someone who highlights the talent of what I see on film, I may have him on a high, I may have a high score for him, but I'm going to be saying, listen, this is if, obviously the NFL doesn't think he's healthy enough to play. Like they don't think that he he's going to be able to stay healthy. They don't think he's reliable. And that means that he's starting from the bottom up and is going to have a lot more to prove, a lot more to do 
to get into that position and sustain that position or sustain that opportunity to thrive. And at that point, why would you value him as a guy that you'd recommend in the first or second round of a dynasty draft? You'd be recommending him probably well after the fourth round um, of a dynasty draft. And I think that that's where that, that also gets to the point where with rankings, they can be problematic because you want to, it is, it's about that frame of reference for me. I think the thing I struggle with as a content provider is I don't want to say, I don't want to put the guy, you know, 20th on my board and overweigh injury when I have no way of understanding what, how serious the injury is. And then at the same time, I don't want people to be drafting the guy that I rated number one overall, number one overall. If I know, if I'm telling, if I'm writing in my report, you know, if the situations work out, he could get to, he can deliver upon that potential, but the likelihood of those situations working out is much lower than the other guys and figuring out a way to like adjust it is too problematic. I mean, it's like, I, you know, it's like I had Skylar Thompson, number one overall on my board in terms of talent level for quarterback. I mean, I'm telling everybody, well, he's an anomaly. He's either, he's probably going to either be an anomaly. I love his talent. I love what he could possibly get an opportunity to do, but the, uh, the likelihood of him having that opportunity to really show what he can be like seven or eight games where they're really going to work with him in a row as the starter and get that kind of development like Davis Mills did was going to be less than what Davis Mills, which wasn't extremely extraordinarily high, even though he was what a third round pick, you know, I think in the, in the draft for the, for the Texans. So that's the thing with a guy like Wilson. It's fun to be able to see him perform well at the senior bowl. It's also, you know, right now I'll tell you, I mean, based on based on his route running which is a big part of his skill set um you know for a wide receiver skill set i think he might be i think he's one of the two to three best in this class from what i've seen thus far but um you know that's going to be the challenges he's going to grade high but you know where he's drafted is going to be the going to be the factor that's going to dictate the rankings it's going to be like, listen, if, if he gets the opportunity and it's a, it's a legitimate opportunity, you're going to want this guy, but you're not going to want to invest him in early at a high value to do that. And that's, that's where you have to be clear about these types of things. And sometimes rankings just don't cut that. Yeah. And it's important too, to recognize, I mean, as a consumer of something like the rookie scouting portfolio, that the NFL has access to information we don't. I mean, we can we can do the best we have with the information That's we right. have. We can make, and I think you do, you know, a fantastic job with the information you have available, um, and the judgments on that information are are strong. But like, if a dude doesn't show up to practice, the NFL knows that, and we right. don't, right? If the dude's knees, you know, they get him in an MRI, and his knees are like silly putty. Uh, it's like Denario Alexander level carnage in there. <laughs> yes. Um, the NFL knows that, and we don't. And we can try to guess at that, 
um, you know, if a guy falls a lot further than we should, we can we can think like, okay, why did this happen? Is there something there? Does the is, is the NFL looking at the same thing I'm seeing and reaching a different conclusion, or are they reaching the same conclusion, but also they know something I don't, and that is tricky. I mean, that's a lot harder because um, it's guesswork, yeah. uh, and and you can make informed guesses, but at the end of the day, it's still guesses. Um, so yeah, I, I completely get where you're coming from. Yeah. Where like in terms of like what can this do, guy do on film? That's that's something that you can figure out. So in terms of like uncertainty categorization, there's like different types of uncertainty. There's aleatory uncertainty and epistemic uncertainty. And um, epistemic uncertainty is just something that like theoretically we could know, but we don't. And then aleatory uncertainty is just kind of like randomness. Like if I flip a coin. Could be heads, could be tails. Like that's not something I can know. That's that's outside of my realm of knowing. Whereas, like, if the coin is weighted, that's something theoretically I could know. I just don't know. Um, and I think that, like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that theoretically you could know and you could factor in, but you just don't know. And that I think that kind of uncertainty is a lot harder to deal with because you don't know what you don't know. You can aleatory uncertainty you can adjust for, and you can say. You know, I get that, like, this is a high variance thing. Let's call it 50-50. Let's split the difference. Let's rank in the middle. Um, but, like, when a guy falls, it's like, there's maybe there's a reason for this, and I just don't know it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I totally get I, I totally get why yeah. that would be challenging for you. And, and the other thing to remember, too, is that in terms of um, outcomes, the NFL gets to cheat. Like, you can say a guy is going to be good, and the NFL can say he's going to be bad. And the NFL is more likely to be right because the NFL controls opportunity and they can just not give them opportunity. And that guarantees that they're right and you're wrong. That's right. So it's not it's it's a rigged game um, in that respect, trying to beat the NFL draft because they cheat. That's right. And it's and it's funny because that then you throw in situations that it's difficult because every draft media, every media draft analyst or media scout some of them do different things. Some of them play the draft game. Like, you know, Dane Brugler, you know, does great work. And he's going to he's gonna talk to sources. And part of his game or Daniel Jeremiah's game will be to talk with sources and try and get information on medicals where they can, um, where they can learn things about their character where they can. But at the end of the day, neither of them have a team of investigators or a team of scouts who are going out and interviewing coaches, um, teachers, people in the community, family members, um, Reese, you know, having, they don't have a, you know, an ex detective on staff or law enforcement or industrial psychologist on staff. So at the end of the day, you have a wide range of outcomes. The same people who were like Jimmy Smith, the, the Ravens cornerback, you know, was trouble. He's not worth it out of Colorado. He's just, there's too many red flags with him. Well, that's because some teams didn't like the fact that he smoked some pot, but it turned out that he was actually a really good kid and was, and was actually um, nothing the way that he was characterized. And, you know, one of my scout analytics um, people was just kind of like, listen, you know, all the time you see scouts given the power to editorialize on what, what it is they're um, reporting when they really should just report it and just be Joe Friday, just the facts. 
and leave it at that and let the experts discern what's going on. And a lot of teams do make that kind of error. So you're going to have a range of some teams who do really know, like you say, and then there are some teams that just screw it up completely because they don't really understand how to collect and parse out that information. Um, but the problem is, is knowing what's what, you know, which ones are good and which ones aren't. And, and then how, how often, you know, what information is going to be reliable. Cause you know, if you're, if you're Daniel Jeremiah or Lance Erline, maybe your buddies with the Colts GM or the bears GM, you know, and the bears tend to be used to be very conservative about everything. And they were the type of team that just totally didn't want Jimmy Smith at all based on that. And they painted a picture that they shouldn't have. Whereas the Ravens, you know, you look at them and they're like, it wasn't that big of a deal, you know? So you, those are the difficulties of this where, you know, that's why someone like a Greg Cosell or even myself, we're kind of, we just kind of say, we leave this character stuff alone. Like, it's just like, I'm just going to show you what I can see and the other stuff I'll, I'll talk about. We could entertain it, but I'm not impacting. I'm not putting it into my grade because it's just, it, it's too difficult to deal with. Uh, you know, a, another difficult situation that we can move on to here that for a lot of fantasy folks might is the San Francisco 49ers quarterback um, depth chart. You know, you've got Garoppolo. Is he likely to move on? Probably so. Um, you know, Russ Landy talked about how Danico Ryan's being in Houston. Well, you know, he worked with Garoppolo. The, you know, the, or at least he was on the team with Garoppolo. Garoppolo's probably going to know the system that he's going to bring over with the people that he has relationships with. So why not, you know, one consideration is if they don't draft a quarterback and they still seem to like um, Davis Mills and there still seems to be some sentiment in the building from what Russ is thinking, that they still want to give him some time, um, even though he's he was up and down last year. What if we put in a veteran like Garoppolo for another year, see how Davis Mills responds behind the scenes here, and then we can make our decision, um, you know, next year um, and kick the, kick the can down the road one more year. Um, if that's the case, Garoppolo might be gone, but now we've got Purdy and we've got Lance. Purdy's now dealing with the UCL injury um, and might not be, probably won't be ready till summer at best. And usually when we hear they're going to be ready by summer, usually means they might not be ready till mid-September, um, especially with an injury like the one he had. And then Trey Lance, you know, what do you think about this 49ers quarterback situation? What's What are the potential plays here? I'm not going to say what is the play. That's That seems too simplistic, especially for, you know, the scenarios that you're going to encounter in Dynasty. Yeah, so... Um... If you look at like the advanced stats on Brock Purdy, they're just insane. I mean, he's like top five in EPA per play, estimated points added per play, uh, which you know doesn't happen to any rookie, um, but like especially to a late seventh round rookie. But we all know. I mean, we have eyes, we have brains. We all know that like playing in San Francisco is playing Madden on easy mode, right? You've got three of the best after-the-catch weapons in the entire NFL, like maybe three of the top six after-the-catch weapons in the entire NFL. So you can do, like, easy throw to them and let them do all the hard stuff. You have 
probably one of the top three offensive schemers in the NFL who somehow manages to get his players open more open more often than basically anyone. You're the best pass protecting um, left tackle in the NFL. Yep. Yep. You've got it's it's easy mode. We know this. It's yeah. I do not think that Brock Purdy was one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL, EPA or no EPA. Um, and it's it's noteworthy that, like Jimmy Garoppolo, has been one of the top five quarterbacks by EPA since he got to San Francisco. He was actually higher than Brock Purdy. And what is San Francisco saying all the time? Oh, this Garoppolo guy, he's a bum. We need to upgrade from Garoppolo. We need to upgrade from Garoppolo. He was top five by EPA. And the reason they wanted to upgrade from him is because they also have eyes and brains, and they know that Garoppolo's playing on easy mode. You put a decent quarterback, and Garoppolo's a decent quarterback, into San Francisco's offense, and he's going to produce these just insane efficiency numbers. Um, so the fact that Purdy produced insane efficiency numbers, I think, tells us he's probably a decent quarterback. I don't know that it tells us a lot more beyond that right now. Um, yeah, so Purdy's probably... A decent quarterback. I mean, all evidence. And and being a decent quarterback as a rookie is an incredible accomplishment. Most rookies are not decent quarterbacks. And that doesn't mean they will never become decent quarterbacks. But just year one in the NFL, even with full training camps and a full offseason to prepare, um, usually rookies are bad. Kevin Cole is one of my favorite like analytics-based um, analysts. And he, he tried to create like an adjusted EPA per play. And he's adjusting for things like how open the receivers are getting, how many yards they're getting after the catch, um, time to throw, defenses faced, weather, things like fumble luck um, and like tipped pass interception luck. And he's adjusting for everything he can. And I'm not saying it's a perfect measure. I think with anything like this, there's always fear of overfitting. But um, Kevin Cole's one of my favorite analysts because he knows the word but and if, which is very important from an analyst. And, and he'll say... You know, I might be wrong, but as best as I can tell, um, and he he loves that nuance and and recognizing the limitations of his metrics. And if he recognizes the limitations of his metrics, um, you know, if I know he's aware of the limitations, I know he's going to be respecting those. And his adjusted EPA per play had Brock Purdy 15th in the NFL this year, which again, for Still a seventh good. round rookie, that's amazing. Yeah. That is unprecedented. And And when I say something is like, historically unprecedented like know that i have this knowledge of history to back up that statement that yeah. like it was an incredible rookie year but that incredible rookie year was like he was average if he can improve from there and there's no reason to believe he can't but if he can improve from there he could be a long-term solution for san francisco at the position if he maintains that you know they can get another three or four years and it'll be like the the garoppolo term 2.0 um, and that wasn't bad. They had a lot of success in the Garoppolo era. Yeah. And getting Garoppolo under a seventh-round rookie contract, like, that's a good competitive advantage. Um, if he regresses, which is always a possibility, then, you know, he's cheap to move on from and they can look for another quarterback. And and I think people underrate the idea that a young player can regress. Uh, there's this idea that that careers are nice, orderly curves, that you enter at a low point and then you ascend and you ascend and you ascend and then you peak and then you descend and you descend and you descend and you're out of the NFL. And careers don't look like that. There are a ton, a ton, a ton of players who have their best year um, statistically in their first or second season. Um, a lot of times it's less common, but it, it's even possible for them to have their best year as a player, like in terms of their actual quality of play on the field in their first or second seasons. I mean, like, 
Cam Newton, in his very first career game, had the second highest passing yardage total of his entire career. In his second game, he had the highest passing yardage total in his entire career. First two games, those are the, the two biggest passing totals he put in his entire career. Um, Anquan Bolden, his first game, he never matched that receiving yardage total. His first season, he never matched that receiving yardage total. It's not entirely uncommon for guys to, to be at their peak when they enter the NFL and just not go up from there. You know, Mike Wallace, his first couple years in Pittsburgh were his best years. That He, he never got better than that. He probably got a bit worse. So given that, um, if I were San Francisco, like obviously hold on to Purdy, like this guy, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but I wouldn't be putting all my eggs in that basket because it's not a sure thing. And and outside of three or four quarterbacks, I would not be putting all my eggs in any baskets. If you have Patrick Mahomes, fine, stop looking at quarterbacks. If you have Brock Purdy, keep looking at quarterbacks. Um, I think the play is more quarterbacks. Um, it sounds like Garoppolo's done. I think it came out today. Somebody said that Shanahan said that like he doesn't see any way for Garoppolo to still be on the team next year. Um, I will add that he didn't really see any way for Garoppolo to be on the team this year and yet. So nothing's done until the ink is dry. But sounds like Garoppolo's done. I would keep Purdy. I would keep Trey Lance. Um, honestly, kind of debating between Purdy and Lance today is just filling time because yeah. by the time they need to make that decision, they're going to have a ton more information. How is Purdy recovering from his injury? How is Lance looking in camp? How is Lance recovering from his injury? You know, put him on the field in, in practice and let him compete and, and see, like, who's looking better. And give him some reps and games and see. I think it's in an enviable position in that they have two young quarterbacks who both plausibly could be quite good. Um, I wouldn't be super, super, super confident in either of them, but I there's tons of reasons for optimism in both of them. And I think the smart thing for San Francisco is to just double down, double your odds of getting something good out of it. Um, kind of like what, what Philadelphia did, you know, they had Carson Wentz and there were good reasons to believe that he would be a good quarterback, but it wasn't a sure thing. And so they doubled down and they got Jalen Hurts, who's another quarterback where there were good reasons to believe he could be a good quarterback, but it wasn't a sure thing. Um, and as we can see that, that bet paid off phenomenally for them. So if I were an NFL team, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be getting as many quarterbacks who were plausibly good as as I could fit on my roster and under the cap. Yeah, no, I think it's a great explanation and a great take with this because, I mean, when you look at Trey Lance, I know there are people who say, well, he hasn't played all that well, but at the same time, from what I saw on film, he did look good. Um, you, you know, if you model it or if you just keep the um, perspective from the – from the point of view that he's, you know, that it was his first few starts, you know? I mean, you think about it, it, the things that he did, the things that he didn't do well were correctable. And it's just over the course of time to see whether or not that was, whether he could make that leap in the same way that we look at Justin Fields, where people thought, you know, that you had some people thought he was going to be awful because of his surrounding talent um, two years ago. Whereas this past year, uh, obviously, we've started to see some progress with him. And I think that uh, a player like Lance needed that time. Purdy was an interesting case just from the standpoint that um, he was my sixth-rated quarterback last year above Malik Willis and Desmond Ritter. Um, and he had a grade that was higher than Zach Wilson on my board in terms of if we were comparing them from year to year. Um, and I got to do a little work for his quarterback coach pre-draft. 
um, who was Will um, Will Hewitt who Hewitt who was working with um, he works with a number of guys and was just trying to get him drafted. Like that's the he, he that's what he's kind of known for is getting getting guys in the late rounds drafted, you know, or signed by those are the kind of his clientele. But he, you know, he mentioned that you know recently that you know the thing about um, Purdy was that he was very mature about wanting to know like everything that was thought about him. He said, whereas and what he needed to really work on, whereas with a lot of young guys, you don't really do that because they they don't really want to know. Like they're not as ready for that kind of. Even if they say they are, you know they're not. Um, and you kind of have to kind of discern what you share with them. And he said over the course of the training, it became very clear that he was someone that I could share a lot with. And 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 he was really going to work at it and take it to, um, you know, put it put the feedback to practical use. And, um, you know, so for the fact that he, like you mentioned, that he's 15th in, that, in an adjusted EPA, um, is pretty amazing um and he's the type of player that uh, how that looks on the field to me is he's a player that had to learn how to play within himself and then improve his arm strength he has just enough arm to be in the nfl as a backup and maybe a borderline starter but not enough that where if a defense says we're going to pin you into one side of the field and make you use a deliver high velocity targets to win um to win completions that otherwise would look covered um you're going to lose that and we're going to try and force you in those situations or you're just gonna have to throw the ball away and do things that the the wisest quarterbacks do which is just get rid of the ball and then wait for your opportunity to come and purdy's done that and and at iowa state he didn't at iowa state he took a lot of chances you could see what he was thinking and you're thinking wow that's a great idea but you don't have the arm to do that like it's and he would just he would either just make it and you're thinking a, a defensive back who's a beat faster is going to be all over this and that's not going to look good in the NFL or he just missed it and it was awful but his pocket presence was fantastic there was a lot about his game that you could look at and say if you could get him in a west coast offense like the Shanahan system that was a good fit for him right away and he, and he could play within his limitations and know what those were he could be a you know a comp he could develop into a competent quarterback well there's something to be said about like you said if you're playing on the easy madden mode where it's so obvious that all you have to do is just get the ball out to the right guy and don't overthink it um it's almost a reinforcement of what the right things are to do and now you're not getting in a situation where you're overthinking about things that you used to do well in college, but now you're doing them poorly in the NFL because you're trying to do too much. Um, they got a lot of that out of the way for him as a rookie. He got the perfect developmental kind of runway to just say, all right, let's just play advanced football because now we're not, you know, whereas Justin Fields, it was like when you take two, two steps out of your three-step drop and there's a defender in your face, 
you're more likely to make mistakes that you didn't make at Ohio State because you didn't encounter that on a regular basis. And now you're overthinking everything if it's happening on a regular, you know, as often. So, you know, th that's the that's the positive end of this. Um, that said, Trey Lance, you know, more physically um, talented, but maybe more used to trying to make do more than what he should. Um, and so we're going to, that's going to be a fascinating. To me, the play is, is if you have Trey Lance, keep Trey Lance. If you have Brock Purdy, keep Brock Purdy. If there's a guy, if you're going to acquire anybody and the best guy, that, the guy you're going to most likely get a, a discount on is Trey Lance. Um, but it's got to be a significant enough discount, I would think, to be able to, to be able to do that. And the only reason I would say that, and Adam's given me the, kind of the eye roll there like i'm not quite so sure about yeah, I don't that know. i don't know about that you know and he, and he might be right defend your case there Go oh yeah I, my case would be is that after what purdy did there's there's the concern that you know lance didn't do it as early on and didn't state his cases as well early on and purdy took them to the playoffs and the, the casual thinking is going to be you know as long as purdy's arms healthy enough to go He's going to be the guy and Lance has already gotten a bit of his shot and hasn't shown enough. Um, and so that would be my thought is that people are going to be more down on Lance as a result of that. And they're going to see Purdy in the same way that I saw this biased idea, which was, you know, on ESPN where it's this Purdy's the Purdy's ultra smart and a, a craftsman and a field general and a decision maker who's really just has a great grasp of offensive football. And he has the advantage over Dak Prescott, who's just the raw talent and the key and peel, like he's voodoo and he got it from his grandma and he's this great athlete, you know? And it's like, they did this really awful comparison that way that is just racially biased from that standpoint. And I think that that's a very common thing. So I would be more apt to believe that they're going to look at Trey Lance and they're not going to think about Trey Lance, the budding technician, Trey Lance, the budding field general, the guy who studied just like, you know, Dak Prescott studies, but they're going to look at it from that standpoint and say, well, obviously the natural talent's not enough. So, you know, let's go with the hard worker and the, the, the guy who's the overachiever, you know, yeah. and, and, and all these dumbass things that people say um for analysis that just aren't really true and the, and so the so for me i would rather play on the bias that that people have and it's not mean it's not racist in the hateful standpoint of it being racist it's just more of the it's just more the unintentional bias that happens across the board where people yeah, look people at people seeing what they expect to see and not what's actually there. Yeah. yeah. So, so Lance is more likely to fall victim to that. And so you might get him more at a discount. Whereas, you know, Purdy, that's, that's my case though with Purdy's injury that may cloud the whole waters of that, you know? So, yeah, I think my case would be like at this point, anybody who has Lance either traded to get him when he got hurt, or did not trade him away when he got hurt and has held him for the past five months. So I think Lance is already sorted. Whoever has Lance in your league is probably a Lance believer. That's true. And that it's always hard to buy players from believers. 
Um, like the, the time to buy an injury, an injured guy's right after the injury, not after the guy's been carrying it for a couple months. Because even if he gets a good deal, now he's going to be like, oh, why did I carry him for those five months? Why didn't I just trade him five months ago? So there's a bit of a sunk cost there. Um, and then alternately, Purdy to me strikes me as there's, there's a type of quarterback um, who tends to get underrated a little bit in fantasy and that's like the kind of like the replacement level middling kind of guy your Andy Dalton your Kirk cousin those guys typically produce results higher than their talent level um, and the dynasty community tends to hate them you can get those guys for like a song and I think to me Purdy has a guy who I don't know if he's going to be in there but I think there's a lot of fear that he's going to be in there so he might be available cheap but I think the real play is the one that you suggested and didn't even realize it and that's by Dak Prescott because I don't know what happened to Dak Prescott. Like after one, like from from 2018 or 2019 to 2021, like his stats were just like elite, like insanely elite. He's like not quite Mahomes, but like not too far behind Mahomes. And then he had one kind of a little bit down year where he's playing through injury and it wasn't even that down. Like maybe he was like 10th instead of third. And now everybody's like, Oh, Dak Prescott, like he's, he's an albatross quarterback, you know, like he's not worth his contract and Dallas can't win with him. And I'm like, are we really going to override a three year sample based on like 10 games where Dallas Dallas still had like, yes, they had like the third best offense in the NFL. Like what, what is going on here? So yeah, Dak, Dak is the real buy. Um, cause you could probably get him for not too much more than, than Trey Lance at this point. And he just, as a dynasty, as a, as a dynasty quarterback is just miles ahead of either of those San Francisco guys, in my opinion. I, I think that's a great way to conclude this show is just say that, that the conclusion about the San Francisco 49ers is to buy Dak Prescott. Um, Absolutely. I, I think it's awesome. And on that note, listen, you know, thank you guys for listening, Adam, does great work over football guys. You can find him here. We're going to do this uh, as, as often as we can during the uh, off season. I'm getting um, the rookie scouting portfolio ready. You can pre-order it for it's April one download for um, 21 95. You get a pre-draft and a post-draft, um, um, you know, update. Um, both are really publications in their own right, complete with rankings, with in-depth profiles, um, discussion about the positions and how teams draft and what the, um, you know, kind of what the history is behind a lot of that and where the trend, I think the trends might be going um, in addition to, um, you know, just kind of taking you through my process as well, a process that has had, um, you know, makes the RSP one of the two most purchased um, independent draft guides, according to guys like Alex Brown, who are, um, you know, who is the director of recruiting at SMU and meets with NFL scouts and personnel people and looks at what they purchase. It's one of the two most purchased independent draft guides with that. And uh, listen, you know, I could joke around and say, if Brock Purdy's quarterback coach wanted me to provide some scouting reports on him so that he could review him with Brock. And, and he told me, he said, listen, some of the stuff you said was eerie um, because I asked him questions about it. And um about some things we watched on film and he said nearly word for word some of the things that you wrote um then you know i'm not going to get them all right that's for sure i've had my major misses and will continue to but um you know it's nice to know that i get some endorsements 
from people who are you know work with NFL players or work with NFL personnel, um, and you get it from a fantasy writer who's been working at Football Guys since 2009 and been in this industry since 2003. So you can you can you know use those as my my street cred, I guess. You can go over to mountwaldman.com and get it for 21.95, and I do still donate up to five thousand dollars to Darkness to Light, an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children as well um, through educational programs um, through with communities government organizations schools individuals um, as well as teaching people how to handle the issue when it does unfortunately occur so that it doesn't compound the effects of um, you know what what happens with children and I would tell you if you want to know and I know it's a very difficult subject matter but if you really want to see what can happen with people who go through this kind of abuse um, on a systemic level and kind of what they have to cope with and what they have to overcome and what kind of things happen or what's common with a lot. A lot of people overcome it and live wonderful lives, um, you know, and, but there are a lot of people, if you go to the podcast, soft white underbelly, which is a fantastic podcast on YouTube um, done by Mark Leda. Um, who is a world-renowned photographer, commercial photographer, who's been doing interviews of people on Skid Row. Um, and you get, you kind of see a common theme. And a common theme with a lot of people who are doing things on kind of the um, the periphery of what, you know, functional society is, um, you, you find a common thread. And a common thread is, is abuse and how little it's talked about. So... Uh, you know, I'm a big advocate for for darkness to light dl.org. You can donate directly there if you just prefer to do that. Um, and I would encourage you to do so. They do fantastic work. Um, you can find all of that there. So again, thanks a lot. Appreciate you um, you know, listening to this podcast. I know you're tuning in for Adam and the great work that he does there. I appreciate that you humor me in my mouth as I run it. And I'm going to end it right here and have a good week. <laughs>